Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. listeners to another episode of Flowers and Fishnets. I'm Ryan Daly, and this time I'm going to review the second issue of Black Canary's monthly series from the 90s. But before I do that, I want to share my thoughts about the canary as she has been depicted on Arrow, the CW Network's smash hit series based on DC's Emerald Archer. The canary has evolved a lot this season. I'm not going to talk about recent events that have affected the character in Season 3. I'm not going to talk about the state of Laurel and Sarah right now. I think I'll wait till the season is over, or at least when I have a better idea of what's coming. Instead, I'm going to share my thoughts on the series and the Canary in Season 2. Before that, however, I want to give some more free publicity to the Black Canary comic coming in summer from writer Brendan Fletcher and artist Annie Wu. Issue 1 comes out June 17th. It's cover price $2.99 for 32 pages. The solicit reads, Dinah Lance hits the road. After years as a soldier and vigilante, the last place Dinah saw herself is on stage. But she's quickly learning that she'd die to protect the gang of misfits she's fallen into. And she just might have to. For some reason, the newly rechristened band Black Canary seems to be a magnet for trouble and Dinah's not going to believe it when she finds out the reason why. Martial arts, super spies, and rock and roll combine, from Brendan Fletcher and Annie Wu. One of my listeners, Ange, who runs the Supergirl fan site Comic Box Commentary, directed me to an interview with Fletcher and Wu on Comic Vine. I'll make sure to provide a link to the interview on the blogger post with this episode, but I wanted to read one quote from Fletcher. They'd been talking about how important music and fashion is to the series, when the writer reminded us what's at the core of Dinah's character. He said, You will never have seen Dinah kick as many butts as she does in this series. It's pretty heavy on the martial arts. If I was conducting the interview, my follow-up would have been, Is it June 17th yet? The first time I heard Green Arrow was getting a TV show, I was apprehensive. With nothing but Smallville to base it on, I didn't have a lot of faith or interest in putting superheroes on the small screen. I know Smallville was successful, but it wasn't my show. 
I've only seen, I think, three episodes. And then more details came out, like this show was only going to be called Arrow, not Green Arrow, and that it was going to be on the CW network really turned me off to the concept. I'm not the target demographic for the CW network. All their shows are geared toward teens and early 20-somethings with a cynical and immature view on family relationships. It always seems like family is the real enemy on those shows, and everyone is scheming to betray you. Also, the fact that everyone looks like an underwear model just gives it a superficial air that felt really hollow and bland. So I didn't watch Arrow when it came on. I did do a little bit of research to confirm that Dinah Laurel Lance was on the show, and she was Oliver Queen's girlfriend or ex-girlfriend, but it was clear she wasn't going to be dressing up as Black Canary, so I skipped Arrow. I missed the entire first season. And then, two summers ago, I'm following the news coming out of San Diego Comic-Con, and the news and rumor sites start blowing up with talk about Arrow Season 2 and mentioning Black Canary. Then I find out that the producers showed a sizzle reel or teaser for the second season, and that they had footage of Black Canary in action. And then I saw the footage myself. I saw this woman in black leather with a bleached blonde hair and a mask kicking the crap out of some muggers. And the clip ended with a guy asking, who the hell are you? And an awesome heroic shot of the canary standing on the wall, ready to wage a war on crime. It blew me away. I've got to start watching Arrow now, I decided. I wanted to catch up on the first season before the second season started, so I took a big gamble and bought the first season on Amazon Instant Video. And by the way, the week after I bought it, the show came to Netflix streaming. So I watched the show, and I had a whole lot of misgivings about the first couple episodes. They made it clear very early on that this show was not targeted at comic book fans in general or Green Arrow fans in particular. This show was written, produced, and cast for CW audiences. Everyone was young and beautiful and obvious. More than anything, the main character was different than what I read in the comics. If nothing else, it was truth in advertising. The star of the show wasn't Green Arrow. It was a wannabe Batman who happened to use a bow and arrow. I didn't know if I could stick with it after two episodes. I'm glad I did, because right around episode four, the show turned a corner. When Ollie shared his secret with Diggle, he acquired a partner. This made him less solitary, less needlessly brooding. A sidekick is great for dramatic purposes. It gives the hero someone to talk to, which makes exposition and characterization so much easier, so much more fluid and natural, and that makes keeping to the story easier. The incorporation of Diggle also laid the seeds for what would become Team Arrow when Felicity Smoke joined the group around the middle of Season 1. Felicity Smoke, as anyone who watches these shows will agree, is the MVP of the CW's DC Universe. She is the heart and soul of the whole damn thing. She can melt you with her smile and make you feel like dirt with a cold, judgmental frown. She's Oracle from the Batman comics, with more social clumsiness and emotional anxiety. And everything about the show got better when she joined Ollie's team, because she made Ollie better. There was nothing wrong about Stephen Amell's performance in the first half of season one, other than it was limited by the writing. But as he began to trust more people, you saw him soften and grow to love his friends and family. And you see an earnestness in Amell that is refreshing, because the actor is incredibly charming, and he was finally able to bring that sincerity to the part. I want to mention now that Oliver Queen on Arrow has little resemblance to Ali in the Green Arrow comics, and I'm not talking about facial hair. The TV show Ollie is much, much closer to Batman. 
After I made peace with that, the show became a lot easier to enjoy. And it was easy enough to and it was easy enough to make peace with that because I don't especially like Green Arrow's character in the comics. I love his look and I love his gimmick, but the character more often than not is insufferably annoying. I think more audiences would have rejected the in-your-face, bleeding-heart, liberal Green Arrow that Denny O'Neill created. I probably would have found that preachy and grating, and I agree with his politics. What was great, though, what was so rewarding, was that my accepting of the differences in comic and TV show felt reciprocated by the show. Arrow wasn't Breaking Bad or True Detective. It was still a show made primarily for an audience that rolls its collective eyes at anyone above the age of 30. But as the show cemented its hold on that audience, the writers and producers had the liberty to incorporate more elements from the comics. Some were subtle Easter eggs, but some were full-on comic booky goodness. It took a long, sometimes meandering first season to get there, but by the time the second season premiered, it felt like Arrow had found its identity and a trust with the audience. That's how the inclusion of Black Canary, as different as she was from the comics, could be embraced so fondly by casual fans and Black Canary bloggers like myself. So, go back to San Diego Comic-Con with the teaser showing Black Canary kicking ass. The news came out almost immediately that this canary was not played by the same actress playing Dinah Laurel Lance, and then the producers confirmed that they weren't the same character. At the time, before I had seen an episode of Arrow, I was upset. Why change something as fundamental as the character's identity? Then, as I watched season one, I realized there was no way Dinah, or rather Laurel, as she was called, because the writers figured nobody since 1920 named her daughter Dinah, I realized there was no way Laurel could become Black Canary. Yes, she was the daughter of a cop, but she wasn't the same kind of fighter. She was a crusading lawyer. She was too cerebral. There was just no way the show could reasonably position Laurel to become a costumed crime fighter like Green Arrow. Also, Laurel was the most annoying character on the show. With that in mind, I was open to a new character taking on the Canary's identity, and distancing the part from who Laurel was becoming. And over a couple of episodes in the beginning of season two, they started revealing more of who this canary was, and I totally dug the revelations. First, the canary was Sarah Lance, Laurel's sister, believed dead for five years. I liked that they kept it in the family. Sarah Lance was a brand new contrivance for the series, but there was at least a familial connection to Mama Dinah and Sister Laurel. And I loved, freaking loved the backstory that she was found and trained by the League of Assassins. In the comics, Black Canary trained under several masters. And it always struck me as a bit of a missed opportunity that she never trained with the League alongside Bronze Tiger and Richard Dragon. So the TV show reveals that not only did Sarah train under the demon's head, but she became Ra's al Ghul's daughter's lover. Yes, Canary and Nissa al Ghul, better known as not Talia, fell in love. This was another change I liked a lot, because in as much as Nyssa was a stand-in for Talia, this made Black Canary a stand-in for Batman in this one special circumstance. That's impressive for her street cred. I also liked her bisexuality. It's a change that would make sense for the Black Canary in the comics, too, if they wanted to go down that road. Even though Dinah has been married several times, and she's had a lot of male lovers, I don't think you would substantially change anything about her character by making her lesbian or bisexual. It would be a culturally progressive step that would be a lot easier for longtime fans to accept than turning Green Lantern gay or the Flash black. 
I also loved the Canary's costume on the show. The skin-tight black leather looked great on Katie Lotz, who was gorgeous. If you'll pardon me, I really liked how the costume accented her cleavage. That's part of the character's iconic look that would be easy to dismiss for the show, but instead they embraced it. I liked that she wore a mask that called back to her earliest appearances in the 40s. And I loved that even though Sarah had kind of a dirty blonde hair, she still wore a wig because it really sharply contrasted with the blackness of her outfit. I wanted her to be in fishnets, but I can see that wouldn't have been very practical or realistic. I was appeased slightly, however, by the fact that her pants do have a cross-stitched pattern running up her thighs, so that's a little nod to the fishnet stockings. From a tactical standpoint, they had to give her a weapon. It looks better in the action scenes, so they gave her a bow staff that could collapse into a pair of sticks. I would be just as happy with her using her hands and feet as her primary weapons, but the staff isn't bad. And the best little nod is her canary cry. No, she doesn't have a sonic scream. She has sonic grenades that she uses to distract or incapacitate her enemies. All told, even with her deviations from the comics, the Black Canary on Arrow was in ways truer to the spirit of the source material and a better, more enjoyable live-action depiction than I could have imagined. Canary is the reason I started watching Arrow. She continued to be my favorite part of Season 2, and so far, I have been mostly happy with her evolution in Season 3. A couple weeks ago, representatives from the CW Network and Greg Berlanti's production team announced that they were putting a cast together for a possible Arrow Flash spinoff. This would feature The Atom, Firestorm, and Katie Lotz in an unconfirmed role. I badly hope she's playing Sarah Lance, and I hope she gets to put on the Black Canary costume yet again. You don't know, Laurel, about me, about who I am and who I've become. I know you're a hero. I'm not a hero, Laurel. I am the furthest thing from it. I am Tayyir Al-Safer. That was my new name. Because the woman that I was, the girl that I was, was gone. I'm not going to pretend that I've been through anything that you have. One thing that I've learned in the past year is that these things, they don't break us. They make us who we are. What I am. Issue 2 has a cover date of February 1993, but in truth, it would have hit the shelves just in time for Christmas on December 22, 1992. That date comes from Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Hero Worship Part 2 features the same creative team as the last issue. Writer Sarah Byam, penciler Trevor Von Eden, inker Bob Smith, letterer Steve Haney, colorist Julia Lockman, and editor Mike Gold. 
Trevor Von Eden drew the cover, which shows Black Canary backlit by the headlights of a speeding car that is bearing down on her. I'm not sure if Dinah realizes the danger she's in. You can't really see her face, and her pose doesn't suggest she's about to leap out of the way at the last second, so I guess she's going to die. There's an interesting color scheme going on with this cover. Whereas the cover to issue 1 was heavy on blues and purples, this one goes warm tones. Black Canary is colored entirely red, and the car behind her is washed out in yellow and white. I don't know why the colors are so monochromatic. I think I get what they're going for, but it doesn't work for me. I find this cover really boring, because the car doesn't feel finished. And the two basic colors make me think... Ah, somebody's son or daughter worked on this while mommy or daddy was stuck in the office. I have read this comic five or six times, and I always get tricked by the first page. I'll explain that in a moment. The issue opens with Black Canary coming home to the apartment she shares with Oliver Queen, better known as Green Arrow. She takes off her wig, jacket, boots, fishnets, leotard, and climbs into bed naked. Ollie's already asleep, and it looks like he's probably snoring. While she's getting ready for bed, Dinah Laurel Lance questions her commitment to the superhero lifestyle. It's lost a lot of luster, and if you've read The Longbow Hunters, you understand why Dinah is going through an identity crisis. She's also feeling down on herself for failing to catch Sally last issue. Dinah figures the girl is as good as dead now. She also thinks that Ollie is completely oblivious to the changes she's going through. The fact that they share a bed is incidental at this point. She's going through the motions. Okay, here's what confuses me. Every time I see this first page, I think Dinah is getting dressed, not undressed. Maybe it's because her costume looks like a prostitute's outfit, but the scene I envision is that she and Oliver have just finished having sex. She rocked his world, he passed out, and now she's putting her boots and her wig on before heading out the door. It doesn't matter how many times I read the story, that's the image I have in mind until I turn the page and realize, oh, she just got home, she's getting ready for bed. Other than that, I really like the art on these two pages. Von Eden captures the weariness and the sense of failure on Dinah's face as she strips, and the last two panels on page two are really great. First, you see the look of loss on Dinah's face when she looks at Ollie. You see how sad she is that, despite lying two feet away from her, he's just not there. In the last panel on that page, you see the tension on Dinah, and you know she's not going to get a good night's sleep. The next morning, the sun rises over Seattle, and we find that Sally did survive the night. Barely. She dangles over the railing of a fire escape, nursing the kind of hangover that comes from drinking poisoned hooch given to you by someone who wants you dead. Yes, she's still clutching the liquor flask that her mysterious boss gave her at the end of last issue. She drops the flask, and a few seconds later, she follows it over the side of the fire escape. Yes, she falls 20 feet and lands... On her face. Remember last episode how I said Von Eden makes Sally look like she could fight Doomsday? She must have the constitution of Bane, because not only did she survive the poison, but she falls off the side of a building, lands head first, and ends up fine. Later that day, Black Canary visits Lieutenant Cameron at the police station. There's a playful vibe that I think is intentional, but Canary sits on Cameron's desk drinking his coffee. And remember, in this era of the character, Black Canary didn't look like a superhero. She looked like a hooker, and she's making herself good and comfy in the lieutenant's office. Cameron confirms that three people have recently died from a cocktail of Everclear and barbiturates. 
Canary concludes the story she told him in the previous issue about the conspiracy to rig an election about ten years earlier. She tells Cameron that the bootleg moonshine alcohol that blinded one woman also killed three of the other vagrants. After that, Moe and Blackbeard decided to kill off all the potential witnesses. Lieutenant Cameron says, that's some mean politics. Canary says, it's some mean city. Some of my best friends are still trying to save it. Me, I'm grateful to be in Seattle. Holy crap, they did it again. They managed to make the flashback scenes from issue one even more confusing, and they didn't even have to show a flashback. Did you know that all of the flashback scenes in issue one not only took place roughly ten years earlier, they didn't even take place in the same city? If you know Black Canary's history, you know Dinah Laurel Lance grew up in Gotham City, but there was no indication of that given in the story. Any comic can be somebody's first. That doesn't mean every issue needs to hold the reader's hand and walk them through the story. But avoiding unnecessary confusion is not uncalled for. There are times when the first two issues of Black Canary come off like the comic book equivalent of riding in a car with people who keep referring to inside jokes. A little later, Black Canary and Lieutenant Cameron are on the street where Sally woke up earlier. Cameron finds the flask, and Canary finds the earring after leaping up and swinging onto the fire escape with some nice gymnastics. What they don't find is Sally herself, but Dinah thinks she knows where the girl is going. How? She doesn't say, but she tells Cameron she'll be in touch and then leaps off the fire escape and onto the top of a moving vehicle. The next scene would seem to be merely the next stop in Dinah's investigation, until you realize it's a flashback. There's no obvious signal that we're in the past or in Gotham City, until you register the color difference in her costume. This Black Canary's jacket is colored blue instead of purple, and her fishnets are gray, not flesh tone. So this must be the 15-year-old Black Canary. And as much as these flashbacks frustrate me in how they're presented, I do want to credit Trevor Von Eden for the last panel on page 9. This Dinah is clearly younger, not quite cherubic, but the drawing on her face really shows her youth and inexperience. Lil Canary tricks a bartender into thinking she's one of the streetwalkers working for Moe. The bartender coughs up the location of Moe's hideout. When she gets there, the guy we called Blackbeard last issue, because his name wasn't mentioned and he had no other defining characteristic, now we find out his name is Larry, which also happens to be Dinah's dad's name. Probably just an unfortunate coincidence, but when you only give so many characters names in these comics, maybe a little differentiation would be helpful. I don't know. So, Larry, the black-bearded one, Larry is ripping Mo a new one because the rot-gut booze he fed the vagrant voters is killing them. If this causes an election scandal, somebody named Guerrero would kill them. Thank God it wasn't somebody named Curly. Back in the present, Sally walks to a fancy hotel with a uniformed doorman. With her pink mohawk and leather jacket, Sally really stands out in the hotel lobby like a urine stain on a field of virgin snow. Tell me you didn't love that simile. As much as she doesn't seem like she belongs, though, she seems pretty familiar with this place. She knows the name of the concierge, the impression is that she frequents the hotel lobby at night to pick up Johns, and she has a line that suggests her boss-slash-pimps might own the hotel, maybe? But when she arrives in broad daylight, a stuffy woman tells her to leave or she'll call the police. Sally leaves, not wanting to get picked up and sent off to juvenile hall. The concierge calls the mystery man from the end of issue one, the same guy who paid and poisoned Sally. We get a bit of exposition here. 
The hotel wants to host the national convention for one of the major political parties. But the hotel has a problem with hookers and homeless bums loitering around the area. So the people running the hotel hired this guy named Jacob Warsman to get rid of all the street people. Jacob Warsman, yes, that's his name. It's spelled W-H-O-R-R-S-M-A-N. So you could potentially pronounce it Warsman or Horsman. This guy made a previous appearance in the Green Arrow Annual from 1992, which tied into the Eclipso the Darkness Within event. In that story, Black Canary became possessed by the spirit of Eclipso and tried to murder Warsman, who was this greedy, scrupulous CEO of a company called Tritelasar. So this guy, Horsman, I cannot say this guy's name without freaking out. What the hell is wrong with the people who named this character? It's got to be a joke, or it's got to be named after somebody that the writer or the editor knew in real life. Why would you give somebody a name like Horseman that could be read that way? This, the name You read that name, and it just pulls you right out of the story. Like, wait, what? His name is what? It's one letter away from being something just laughably bad. It's not that far from it. It looks like Horsman. I'm going to try and pronounce it Warsman because there's a line that's sort of similar to that in a later issue. I, who cares? This guy is stupid. But anyway, this guy, Warsman, assures the hotel people that he'll get rid of Sally and the dregs of society. Inside his high-rise office, Warsman has a meeting with a hired assassin. And I have to come out and say that I only just realized that the assassin Horseman is talking to is the same guy from Molly's Bar in issue one. Remember the guy who tried to grab Sally and when she walked away he pulled a gun on her? Remember how crazy and random that seemed at the time? Well, it turns out this guy was hired to kill Sally in that bar. And Black Canary spoiled the plan. I swear the scene has always confused me. I thought the book was missing pages, but it was just sloppily presented that this is the same gunman from the last issue. Anyway, the, hit, the hitman takes off his bearded disguise, revealing he's got kind of oily black hair. He tells Warsman that he would have killed Sally if he wasn't stopped by a Jedi Master. He's got to be talking about Black Canary, yeah? What an odd reference to compare her to Ben Kenobi saving Luke from Dr. Evazan and Ponda Baba in the Mos Eisley Cantina. It's a weird scene. Not the Star Wars scene. The Star Wars scene is brilliant. This moment in the comic is weird and dumb. Anyway, Assassin Guy admonishes Warsman for going the cheap route and using Sally to distribute his poison to the homeless people, because Sally is a loose end now. So the Assassin has to kill both Sally and Black Canary. Then we flash back to Lil Canary again. She rushes down the stairs of the building she tracked Mo to and catches up to him out on the street where he's carrying the bottles full of moonshine. She screams, Hey Mo! As in, Sonic screams, using her canary cry to shatter the bottles. Mo bolts and gets on a bus just like he used to escape last issue. How many bad guys use public transportation to flee from superheroes? This has got to be a first. Lil Canary is just about to catch up to the bus when she's hit by a car. Not just any random car in the streets of Gotham, though. It's Larry, as in Blackbeard, Moe's partner. Is it just a coincidence that he's there, or did he spot her chasing Moe and decide to help his partner? 
I'm not sure how he spotted her, but little Dinah recognizes him through the cracked windshield. She kicks through the window, knocking Larry out, causing the car to ram into the back of the bus. The bus stops, and Mo gets off and makes a run for it. Little Canary catches up to him, and after a brief tussle, she beats him down. Just like in the first issue, the penultimate page of this book is a full-page splash. This time, the image is worthy of the lead character. The little black canary stands, young but no longer inexperienced, over the unconscious Mo as Gotham citizens gather around. Then we get another splash for the final page. This time we're back in the present, and adult black canary tells the assassin he won't get away with it. It being killing Sally, who he holds by the throat. Wait, what? How did we get here? The last time we saw Black Canary in the present, she told Lieutenant Cameron she thought she knew where Sally was going. The last time we saw Sally, she was leaving the hotel. The last time we saw the assassin, he was in Warsman's office saying he wanted to kill Sally and Canary. Now they're all already together in the same location? It's some run-down part of town, but how did they get there? How did the assassin know where to find Sally? How did Black Canary know where to find Sally? Why is Black Canary standing there like a statue? Her body language is all wrong. It comes off rigid, totally unprepared, which usually signals that a character is badass because he is prepared for the fight and he knows he can win. There's never a sense of urgency because the outcome is predetermined. But that's not the spirit of this scene. There should be desperate urgency on Dinah's part. The girl she's been searching for is half a second from being murdered. The killer has his hand on her throat, and Canary is 20 feet away. The end says to be continued, but I'm pretty sure Sally is dead, unless Canary gets her button gear and does some saving. Okay, what did I think about this issue? It's an improvement over the first issue. It still has a lot of flaws, but at least I understand the stakes now, and I have a pretty good idea of why most of the characters do what they do. The present case that Dinah is investigating is finally explained. Not well, but enough to get that Warsman has been poisoning prostitutes and homeless people, trying to clear out the poor and unsightly so Seattle can host a national convention. That type of conspiracy reminds me of the movie Chinatown or some Raymond Chandler mystery novels. It's right out of crime noir because there are a bunch of moving pieces and flashy lights, but when you strip all of those away, it's just about the money. I like that, and as much as I wanted a more colorful foil for this opening story arc, I could settle for this type of mystery if it was presented well. But it's not. The case isn't hard to follow because it's a mystery. It's a mystery only because it's hard to follow. The way we meet the characters and what they do frequently doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know how Black Canary and Lieutenant Cameron go from his office to the building where Sally almost fell to her death. What brought them to that building? How is Dinah tracking this girl that she can find in the last page? Who is Sally to Dinah? Aside from being a teenage prostitute whose clothing is similar to Black Canary, which might say more about the hero than the little girl, what made Black Canary start following Sally last issue? Did Dinah know that Sally was being used to poison people? How did she figure that out? Does she have an emotional connection to this girl? Does she see some of herself in Sally? After two issues, I don't really know anything about Sally, so I'm not overly invested in Black Canary saving her. All I do know is that she drank poisoned liquor and survived, and fell off a fire escape landing on her face, 
and survived. She should not have been able to walk into that hotel lobby. Her face would have looked like raw steak and her skull would have been split open. I was also disappointed that the present case is not connected to Dinah's first adventure as Black Canary. There wasn't some unfinished business from the flashback scenes. Mo didn't get away to start poisoning vagrants again ten years later. This just happens to be the same type of crime that sparks Dinah's memory. The villain's method is just a coincidence, otherwise known as the worst, laziest conflict in dramatic fiction. Again, I don't know how much blame for these problems should be leveled at Sarah Byam and how much should go to Mike Gold, the editor. I think they need to share it. Trevor Von Eden isn't blameless either, but the art was mostly really good in this issue. Those opening pages of Dinah getting ready for bed are really sweet. The conclusion to the flashback story with Lil Canary chasing and beating up Moe and Larry was really good. She got some nice action panels, got to show off how tough she was even as a 15-year-old. The penultimate splash page with Canary standing over Moe, the crowd watching Black Canary is really great. There's a woman and either her son or a little brother, and they both have big grins on their face. There's also a dirty old man staring at Black Canary's teenage backside, looking quite pleased. The man's wife, uh, not so much. There's something about Von Eden's art that I noticed first in the New Wings miniseries, and it continued in the Black Canary ongoing. He will draw a lot of images where the character's face is obscured by a shadow or hair or an object. It's not that he can't draw faces, he draws beautiful faces, but there are a lot of shots in his comics where you can't see the characters that are talking. For instance, in the last two pages, both of which show Black Canary standing somewhat heroically in the center of the panel, her long blonde hair is covering part of her face. And on the last page, the assassin guy is turning away from us, so we only see a little bit of his face, and half of Sally's head is cut off by the edge of the panel. I don't feel comfortable calling this lazy art, which was prevalent in the early 1990s, because Von Eden didn't break into the business at that time. He started 15 years earlier. It's just a weird stylistic decision that I don't like. That's another negative note to end this review on. I want to sound more positive about this comic, but this first story arc was so full of problems I can't ignore. If nothing else, though, this issue was better than issue one. Will issue three continue to improve? You're just going to have to join me next episode to find out. And now, Canary Correspondence, where I read your comments and give shout-outs to the people who promoted this show on social media. I got an anonymous comment on the blog for episode one. I'm pretty sure this comment came from Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine family of podcasts. I'm going to treat this comment as if it came from Frank, and if I'm wrong, I apologize. Not to Frank, but to whoever actually wrote it. The comment is fairly long and detailed, so I'm going to break it up and respond to different sections individually. He says, One of the downsides to no longer routinely updating a blog is that I don't throw on a podcast and live comment while scanning art or performing other such mindless tasks. Nowadays, most of my podcast listening is during drive time or sitting in my car eating lunch. So I may be late replying to your debut, but I've listened to it about four times trying to get these comments knocked out. Love the Dynapropriate music. Creative Commons? It gives the show a nice rhythm. I also dig the podcast icon, image, and logo. Dude, if you listened to the first episode four times, bless your heart. I don't even think I have. 
Uh, as for the theme music I use at the beginning and end of the show, that is an original composition by me. I am not a musician, but when I first got the GarageBand program 10 years ago, I started playing with the prefabricated samples and kits. That's all the song is, just 10 different prepackaged 4 to 8 second samples that I slapped together 10 years ago. When I started thinking of the theme that sounded like Black Canary, my first thought was a big band sound, something with a saxophone or trumpet, something that felt crime noir-ish, but I could never find the piece that I liked. Then I just sort of remembered these songs that I arranged myself, and one that I called Bring the Funk, which was kind of an urban drum track combined with a James Bond Man From U.N.C.L.E. guitar sound. I'm pretty happy with how it matches the character, and of course I inject some female-voiced pop songs in each episode. Uh, Anonymous Frank goes on, If it helps, Martian Manhunter has only ever had one ongoing series in his entire career. Waiting to see whether the announced New 52 book is a miniseries or lasts longer than a miniseries, regardless of intention. It doesn't help, because I like Martian Manhunter almost as much as Frank does. Uh, I'm going to check out the first issue of his new series. I really hope it's good, but I don't have the highest expectations because of the creative team. Uh, Continuing, While I got to DC a decade earlier than you, there's something of a parody in our embarrassing circumstances. I had been an X-Men fan who enjoyed the team's constant revision, but left when the franchise became frozen into the model of the popular cartoon, and was orphaned from its single most important creator. The oft-criticized Titans Hunt story arc and its quasi-X-Forcification picked up where Claremont had left me at Marvel, which in turn guided me toward other 90s DC fare. Like you, I eventually came to realize the DC heroes work better as timeless all-age icons than pitiful bandwagon jumpers. Your experience with Black Canary reminds me of my own tuning into Hellcat recently that was initially motivated by a practical agenda, but has since become a full-on fanboy affection for Patsy and Pals. Dinah is a character that I liked more when I was younger and could simply accept her as the judo-throwing gal on the Justice League. I bought her miniseries in the 90s, but it didn't grab me, nor did the last few issues of the ongoing that I probably only picked up for the guest stars. The more I read of Dinah, the more she became anti-feminist, existing only by how she related to other characters. Ali's abused girlfriend, Roy's surrogate mother-slash-sister, Barbara's proxy, the JLI's den mother, the JSA's niece, Wonder Woman's replacement... Even after reading Gail Simone's first run on Birds of Prey, I don't find Donna realized in the same way Oracle and Huntress were. She still feels default street-level heroine to me. I think there's a fine distinction there that the writers in the 90s and early 2000s tended to miss. Having so many relationships and being tied to so many characters should be a strength. It should be one of the greatest assets of Black Canary, unless there's nothing else there. Then she is perpetually a supporting character, never able to carry a story on her own shoulders. I think Canary was at her best during Gail Simone's Birds of Prey, but she still wasn't the star. I mean, she was very much the proxy for Oracle, as Frank said. Barbara Gordon was the heart and soul of that series, which I think was at its best when Dinah wasn't merely the body, but also the conscience, the moral barometer. Black Canary, to me, is sort of the Hank Pym of the DC Universe. Hank Pym, at his best, could only share time in Tales to Astonish. He's much better known for the teams that he's been part of, and for his legacy and his contributions to other characters and events. In fact, I've always seen Hank Pym as the inexplicable center of the Marvel Universe. He's the Kevin Bacon. You can play the degrees of and the matching games. There are nearly a hundred characters in Marvel that are tied to Hank via marriage, 
teams, handed down code names, inventions, or weird other familial relationships. Seriously, you can look at it. It's about a hundred characters. And yet he's not even going to be the hero of the Ant-Man movie, the character he originated. I think Black Canary is the closest DC has to that type of character. You start with her, and you build a modified family tree, and pretty soon you've got a web that links a lot, like half of the DCU. Okay, back on track. Uh, Frank Anonymous goes on, Your synopsis of The Secret Origin makes me like Earth 2 Canary more than Earth 1 Silk Spectre. Here's a woman who knows who she is and what she wants, even if it is freaking Larry Lance and Oliver Queen. A 40s heroine in moderately burlesque gear comes across as more legit than her daughter trying to combine Dita Von Teese and Diana Rigg. A vigilante working undercover as a seeming prostitute would be clever, but I never saw that in Black Canary, who just seems fancy and feminine in her getup. She looks like the hostess of an upscale-themed dinner club, not a streetwalker. Dinah Jr. is too square and no frills to rock that look like her more game mom. Okay, holy crap, this part of the comment knocked me back for a very good reason. I don't know how or why, but I never thought of Dinah's costume as looking like the hostess for the Playboy Club or something. That is absolutely right, of the pre-crisis Black Canary. I love it. Her outfit isn't trashy, it's classy. Still sexualized, but more refined, more elegant. I love this idea, I love that visual cue, it makes perfect sense. Awesome comment right there. Um... The post-crisis canary, though, not the same. Once she was drawn with fishnets over flesh-colored legs, then she looks like a prostitute. The black canary that Randy DeBurke drew in Action Comics Weekly and Trevor Von Eden drew in the miniseries and this ongoing series, they make deliberate mention that she dresses like a vice cop posing as a hooker. And not to criticize hookers, but I preferred the pre-crisis classy dame version. Not just in appearance, but in character too. I love the Earth 2 origin of the woman who wants to serve, who is proactive and fights for what she believes in, rather than the legacy heroine who adopts this identity to either please or piss off her mom. Probably Frank also says, I don't know if Jerry Conway is underrated, but he certainly rates, and I usually breathe a sigh of relief when I crack open a Bronze Age comic and find his name inside. Didn't he write some other canary tales with and without Green Arrow in World's Finest? I respect Terry Austin and how he elevated regard for inkers, but he sometimes is a bad fit due to the particulars of his style, and his later work seemed to be going with the motions. Good work over Vosberg here, though. Looking forward to hearing your take on deep canary cuts to hopefully improve my view of this pretty bird. Okay, once I power through these issues of the 90s series, I want to cover those World's Finest stories. I don't have every issue of World's Finest that Dinah appeared in, but the ones I do have, I really enjoy. They are some of my favorite Black Canary material. Alright, moving on. I received a couple of comments on episode 2. Ange wrote, I haven't read any of this Black Canary title, so I am glad you are reviewing it, and I think your critique sounds on the money. From the weird political plot to the lack of flashback warnings, it sounds like something that could have used some polishing. Looking at the pages, hearing the plot, I wonder if this was DC's attempt to cash in on Miller's Sin City, which had debuted the year before. From Von Eden's look to the peekaboo skin by Dinah, to the rage against the political machine, it sounds like Sin City Light. Venial Sin City? I suppose if you wanted to do a Sin City copy, Canary is a decent character to start with just from her look. As for the flashbacks, there are so many ways that can be conveyed from coloring with sepia tones to rounded panels. 
Nothing can break me out of a story more than wondering if I skipped a page, or flipping back and forth to try to figure out what is happening. I have the Canary Archives and love the early stuff, so glad you threw that review in too. Thanks for the comment, Ange. This definitely could have been a Sin City story if it was cranked up a little more hardcore. But it's not, so it doesn't even have the aesthetic charms of Sin City, the in-your-face sex and violence. Even venial Sin City is too complimentary for this story. Frank returned to comment on episode 2, one of the less obvious hurdles faced in offering more comic writing assignments to women back in the day was the tendency to seek out ladies who weren't familiar with the structure of comics. That's why comic book editors like Louise Simonson and Innocenti bucked that trend, and why best-selling authors like Jody Picoult made less than a splash in the medium. I read New Wings and found it much too plodding, decompressed, and TV conventional to work as a comic in 1991. It would stand out less today when all the guys are just hacking out lame screenplays with overdeveloped storyboards. Alright, first thing to comment on there is I had completely forgot about Jodie Picoult's run on Wonder Woman until Frank reminded me, and now I hate Frank. Uh, I do applaud DC for seeking out women to write really any of their books, not just the female characters. They certainly tried it with Sarah Byam and before that with Sharon Wright, who wrote Dinosaurian and Action Comics Weekly. Neither of them did very well. Neither of them really had a good handle on the comics medium, which is why an average comics reader has heard of Anne Nocenti and Louise Simonson, and probably hasn't heard of Sarah Byam and Sharon Wright. Frank also said, I love the Trevor Von Eden of a few years prior to this series, but Black Canary marked the point where he began to abandon his angular minimalism in favor of Neil Adams by way of balloon animals. That description cracks me up. Everyone looks rubbery and overinflated with unnecessary cross-hatching. That is absolutely correct. If I recall correctly, Dick Giordano inked the miniseries and assimilated TVE. This issue explains why. Oh, and hey, a spiked pink mohawk in 1993? Even comics were doing mohawks in 1983, and Punk was already dead by then. He could have at least done a Jane Child and only been three years late. Uh, the art on New Wings in 1991 definitely benefited from Dick Giordano's inks. He kept the characters looking more or less proportioned and on model. I got a comment from Chris Franklin. Chris and his wife Cindy do the Supermates podcast, which I just started listening to this week, and it's a lot of fun. They have a great rapport on the show, their back and forth is very playful, and it makes for a really enjoyable listen. Chris can also be heard with Rob Kelly on the Power Records podcast, which is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Chris wrote, I've always liked Black Canary. Maybe it's because of my probable first exposure to her, a world's finest dollar comic in the 70s, where she is shown disrobing in front of a werewolf. No, I'm not kidding. Obvious female attributes aside, I've always admired Dinah's character and all her various incarnations. I know you're not kidding, Chris. That scene where she gets naked in front of a werewolf started in World's Finest issue 246 and continued in 247. Chris went on, I've had that secret origin special you covered in issue one since the mid-80s. Conway is indeed underrated, I think because he was so omnipresent in comics in the 70s and 80s. The man was a workhorse. He does a really good job of giving Dinah a solid backstory. But reading these stories makes me really uncomfortable with the eventual retcon that this canary is the daughter of Larry. She's thinking back to her dad and their wedding and, ugh, no one thought that one through? And Jerry Conway was involved with that one, too. You can't win them all. Your second episode was interesting. I'll be honest, Von Eden's new art style really turned me off the 90s Canary series. 
Frank came up with an apt description. Looking at the covers, it seems Dinah went a little overboard on the thigh master in the 90s. It takes talent in the wrong direction to make Dinah unattractive. I liked his 70s, 80s Green Arrow Black Canary material, but not this. The story sounds really pedestrian as well. I know Green Arrow was more urban than most DCU titles at the time, but this plot sounds like a snorefest. Yes, Johnny Thunder's greatest gift to the DCU and comics in general was giving us Black Canary. Beyond that, he's Snapper Carr with a much more interesting sidekick in the Thunderbolt. Looking forward to more each week. Thanks again, Chris. I think we're all on the same page regarding the story, the art, and the singular redeeming quality of Johnny Thunder. Uh, Jake Wood left a comment on Twitter and an iTunes review, which is great. His review says, Okay, just in two episodes, I'm already excited. I'm very much appreciative of the Black Canary character in comics, and to have a podcast just for her is very exciting, honestly. The mic work is honestly excellent, and you are able to hear Ryan Daly quite well, which is a great thing to see. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you very much, Jake. I hope the show continues to excite and entertain all of you. That concludes this episode. If you enjoyed this show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can also contact me with any questions or comments. You can find me on Facebook, and you can find me on Twitter, at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. I use both with the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on this show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Thank you.